Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. We are very pleased this episode to be in conversation with Dr. Ed Dorn, who teaches defense policy and courses about the relationship between race and immigration policy. He is the former dean of the LBJ School of Public Affairs from 1997 to 2005. Prior to that, Dr. Dorn has spent decades in Washington, D.C., over 20 years, where he worked on civil rights and education policy in the Carter administration and served as Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness in the Clinton administration. During the 1980s, Dr. Dorn was affiliated with Washington think tanks, including the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies and the Brookings Institution. A native Texan, he graduated from the University of Texas at Austin, Phi Beta Kappa, uh, one of the precursors, one of the first uh, class of African-Americans who helped integrate the University of Texas. After serving as an officer in the U.S. Army, he completed his Ph.D. at Yale University. Dr. Dorn's major publications uh, include Rules and Racial Equality from Yale University Press and Who Defends America, uh, which he edited with the Joint Center uh, for Political Studies Press. He was an advisor to the PBS documentary Eyes on the Prize, America's Civil Rights Years, really one of the formative um, documentaries uh, that helped shaped me and my understanding of civil rights and interest in civil rights. He is chairman of the board of the Kettering Foundation and serves on the boards of the Institute for Defense Analyses and the Seton Family of Hospitals. He also participates in the Dartmouth Conferences, an ongoing series of back-channel meetings between prominent citizens of the United States and Russia. So, Ed Doran, welcome to Race and Democracy. Thanks a lot, Peniel. Glad to be here. Ed, I want to talk to you about our present contemporary domestic and international um, politics and political situation, uh, especially since you are uh, you have such great experience at the federal level, but also the global policy level, and really one of the few African Americans who have had this kind of first bird's eye experience, both in the Carter administration, the Clinton administration, your work with the Kettering Foundation, the Dartmouth conferences. Um, I'm surprised as a political observer of the complex relationship with uh, the United States and Russia right now. Um, I grew up during the Cold War. Um, Russia was the evil empire that President Reagan had said. Um, an American president seen to be cozying up to a Russian president would have been anathema in my time. But it seems as if things have changed. I, wanna, I want you to dive into what is the relationship between the United States and Russia? How has that relationship changed? Um, what is the impact of allegations of Russian tampering in American elections, Facebook, uh, the Hillary Clinton defeat, and really the current president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, the cozy relationship that he seems to have with with Vladimir Putin, um, somebody who at least people who are pro-democracy advocates don't hold in high esteem? Uh, it's complicated, uh, obviously. And I guess I would say that the underlying dynamics of the U.S.-Russia uh, relationship are based right now on tension and suspicion. What is really confusing is Donald Trump's uh, very unusual 
uh, relationship and attitude toward Vladimir Putin. We do not understand that. My history of that relationship uh, goes back to the spring of 2016 when we were doing this Dartmouth conference that you uh, referred to earlier, uh, a group of 15, 20 Americans meeting with a prominent uh, Russians from the academy, some with connections to uh, Vladimir Putin, some journalists, a mixed group of fairly prominent people. And the this was in May or June of 2016, just as it became apparent that the contest would be between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And the Russians around the table uh, announced that they were that they liked Trump. And uh, I was at first taken aback by that because everyone knew Trump to be a fairly mercurial character. Nevertheless, they said, we can deal with him. I also knew that the Russians, particularly Putin and people who support Putin, did not like Hillary Clinton did not like Bill Clinton because they felt that Bill Clinton, when he was president in the 1990s, had spent a lot of time spiking the ball. That is, uh, Clinton had expanded NATO to include Poland and other countries that used to be within the Soviet sphere of influence. So I understood that resentment. I assumed that the reason they supported Trump was they knew he was an amateur and they figured they could roll him. Okay. However, given Trump's expressions of admiration toward Putin, his repeated statements that given a choice between believing Putin and believing his own intelligence agencies, he'd believe Putin, you can't help but ask, what have the Russians got on this guy? So we're at a very confused state, and one of the effects of the confusion is that it is very difficult for us to make progress on some really essential things, like nuclear arms control. Uh, We have a START treaty that is going to expire in about a year. There is very little progress toward renegotiating and renewing that very important treaty. Why is it important? 30 minutes. 30 minutes is the amount of time it takes for an intercontinental ballistic missile to fly from the middle of Russia to someplace in the United States. And unless we get things in order, uh, we're going to return to the fear of nuclear Armageddon that so many of us lived with in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Now, staying with the contemporary, and since you teach on immigration, I want to talk to you about this current administration in both immigration policy domestically and internationally, Um, the the Muslim ban as well. But I want to connect this with immigration because one of the things that I think we're seeing is the way in which 
On some levels, race has always historically shaped foreign policy, but I can't recall when we think about ICE detainees, when we think about the way in which this administration and this president has talk, talked about not just Mexico and Mexican undocumented um, people living in the United States, but also about non-Western European countries. He famously called them a slur that I won't repeat on air. But I want to talk about immigration and the Trump administration and really contrast that if there is a contrast with immigration and the Obama administration, because certainly some people have have criticized President Barack Obama as the deporter in chief. Mm -hmm. He defended himself saying he wanted an immigration deal with Republicans, one that the Senate passed by January of 2013, but the House didn't in terms of for comprehensive immigration reform. So how is race playing a role in our our immigration policy and really domestically and internationally? And how does that, if it does, connect with Muslim bans and 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 yeah. and terror and, and and terrorism in terms of policy? Well, let's talk first about Trump and then uh, talk about uh, President Obama. Trump's tagline, make America great again, was an obvious dog whistle. What he really meant was make America white again. And so one of the first things he did was implement a series of immigration restrictions, the Muslim ban being the most prominent, that would reduce the numbers of people coming into the country, and it was very clear that he was aiming at brown folks. How, how was it clear? It was clear by the Muslim ban. It was clear uh, by campaign talk and then later action about building a wall to uh, keep uh, Mexicans and other people from Latin America from crossing illegally into the United States. And all of this was part of Trump's appeal mm -hmm. to the racist in the United States. There's no other way to put it. Now, Trump and Obama do have one thing in common, and that is that they both set out to deport people who were in the country illegally. The big difference is that Obama tried to find a humane way to do that while Trump is determined to make the process of deportation as inhumane as possible. And why is that, Ed? First, because he is not a nice guy. Okay. That's fundamentally it. Second, he believes that by demonstrating cruelty, and cruelty is the policy, by demonstrating cruelty, he will send a very clear message both to the people who want to immigrate into the country illegally and to the countries from which they come. And is he also sending a message to his own supporters? Oh, abs ab absolutely. His supporters want somebody who will be tough to the point of being cruel. So his supporters do not have problems, as far as I can tell, with 
putting thousands of kids in cages and separating them from their parents. That, they view, is an essential part of the message. And as somebody who's worked in policy, you've worked for Department of Defense, what are the policy implications for this um, in terms of not only our own moral standing domestically, but our our international standing? Like, are there any implications for this policy of what you're calling cruelty? Yeah, look, Trump has driven this nation's moral standing down the tubes. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Uh, If you look at international surveys that compare regard for Trump in different countries with regard for President Obama, what you will see is a very dramatic decline, a 30, 40, 50 percent decline in regard for the occupant of the Oval Office, except in Israel, where Trump is more popular uh, than Obama. Virtually every place else, Trump is much less highly regarded. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's not particularly surprising because Trump has made it a point to offend our allies, our NATO allies. He also has made it a point to defend much of the third world. You referred uh, earlier to this vulgarity uh, he he uttered in the Oval Office while describing uh, immigration and saying why he would prefer to have immigrants from Norway than from these other countries. And, and I want to Ed, I want to shift right now to our domestic politics and really the normalization of what we might call Trumpism mm-hmm. and how that is affected. I want to talk about the Congress. I want to talk about the House of Representatives and the Senate. And these are places you know very well. Historically, we had what some people call horse trading. Sometimes we call it bipartisanship. Mm -hmm. Very famously, Tip O'Neill tipped his cap to Ronald Reagan when Reagan was able to cleave 87 Democrats as part of this major tax reform in the 1980s. Tax reform that Democrats, who are liberal Democrats, criticized as wealth redistribution from the bottom up, Mm -hmm. right? Um, We don't see that kind of bipartisanship anymore. Even when you think about the Clinton administration, the welfare reform bill, the crime bill. These are bills that now, in retrospect, liberals and progressives critique. But there was bipartisan support for this, including crime bills um, that that Ronald Reagan passed in the 1980s. There were even members of the Congressional Black Caucus voting for three strikes and, and, and out. Not all members, but some. What, you know, I, I'm very interested in the way in which this kind of rhetoric of, of, of race, this kind of boogeyman of anti-Muslim, anti-immigration politics has, has really cleaved the nation in two. And we see people voting strictly, mostly along party lines, especially in the context of impeachment. You know, and what does that mean for the policy process? Because before we really did have a policy process of compromise, yeah. even even if we were unhappy with the compromise, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is a compromise. The Voting Rights Act of 1965, these are compromises. Um, What is this doing to our policy process domestically? And can we we recover? Because certainly this is a shift from our previous norm. It seems like a consensus has been completely obliterated. 
one of the things that makes me saddest and angriest is the drift of the Republican Party over the past 30 or 40 years. Mm -hmm. And Trump and Trumpism are a culmination of that drift. But you, you stated it very well early on. Republicans strongly supported the Civil Rights Act. But today, the Republican Party essentially is a party of older white folks. Mm -hmm. It is a party that is afraid of um, immigration. Mm -hmm. It appears, I, I recall uh, a few years ago during the Bush administration, mm -hmm. when members of the Bush administration boasted about never having had a passport, because why would they ever want to go abroad? And some of them were appointed to significant jobs and they had to get passports because their jobs required them to leave the country. The Trump administration is merely an extension of that dramatic narrowing or homogenization of the, of the Republican Party. The Democratic Party, meanwhile, is able to expand mm -hmm. because it's more accepting of, uh, of folks. In Texas, for example, way, way back then, when, lots of African Americans joined the Republican Party because the Democratic Party excluded them, yes. refused to let them vote. Mm -hmm. That was my parents' generation, that has changed uh, dramatically. The Republican Party in Texas is pretty much lily white with just a smattering of Hispanics and a very small number of African Americans. And that's what the Republican Party looks like all over. And that is, I think, a sad state of affairs. But Trump merely has, has taken advantage uh, of that. So he's not, he's not the, the causal root of this. Trump learned uh, that race is a motivating factor for large numbers of white Americans. And that's what has driven his candidacy. That is still what motivates his term of office. Look, if I had to summarize where the GOP is right now with respect to policy, I would put it in, in just four simple phrases. Keep black folks down, keep brown folks out, keep women or put women back in their place and make rich folks richer. That's the Republican Party platform. Now, are you surprised at this? And I want to talk about your own backgrounds and your deep roots in Texas and um, being part of the first, really, generation who helps um, racially integrate. Clotilde Haynes, we call mm -hmm. them the precursors. There's a great um, book, uh, As We Saw It, you know, um, co-edited by Virginia Cumberbatch and, and Greg Vincent and, and Leslie, Leslie Blair. Um, you know, you grew up in segregated 
in the segregated in segregated Houston. In yes. segregated Houston, and and so, are you thinking back about the arc of not just your life, but your life as a conduit for the unfolding of American democracy in the post-war era? Because you you've lived it. Are you one? Were you surprised at the changes then? When you think about getting into the University of Texas, getting into the armed forces, being able to get a PhD from Yale and Ascent, and are you surprised now? And then, where do you think we're going to go from here? Because you've seen just extraordinary changes um, over the course of your lifetime. Yeah, I've been very fortunate. Came along in a generation where there was constructive change. And I think when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed, when the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed, many of us looked to a very optimistic future. Lots of things happened, including, of course, the, the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X and Robert F. Kennedy, the war in Vietnam. Lots of things began to tear the uh, the country apart caused us to lose confidence in a lot of our institutions. And it associated with that loss of confidence in institutions was an opportunity hmm. for a resurgence of the, to put it simply, uh, the racism that uh, has has bubbled up, uh, partly at the encouragement of, of of Donald Trump. A lot of us are are very disappointed mm-hmm. at what appears to be the arc, and we hope that uh, enough people will turn out in 2020 and in other elections to get this country uh, back on course. Because as you mentioned earlier, we seem to be having big problems internationally Mm -hmm. uh, because we are doing things that not only uh, hurt our adversaries, but offend our allies, our longstanding allies. And we see some of our political leaders in this country doing things that continue to to tear at the body politic. Well, I want to ask you about um, race and policy and this 2020 Democratic um, primary field, too. Because uh, when I look at history, what I'm astounded by is that when I think about the last almost 100 years of American history, we've gone from Franklin Delano Roosevelt talking about a new deal and four freedoms, um, a a, a second world war where we, we did save democracy, um, um, even as African-American soldiers were fighting a two-front mm-hmm. battle. Um, they called it double V, victory over fascism abroad, victory against racism at home. Um, we did have Lyndon Baines Johnson. We both are at the LBJ school yeah. who talked, I think, quite admirably about a great society, not just America being a good and just society, yeah. but being a great society. I think, still think that is, that phrase is, is brilliant and, 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 and really um, forces us to aspire to our best selves. What has happened, um, especially since Watergate, certainly there was an Obama moment, but what has happened to us in the sense of 
when I think about American democracy in the 20th century, at our best, we think about tackling big problems. Kennedy sending a man to the moon, but also talking about civil rights, June 11, 63. LBJ talking about a war on poverty and a great society. Um, really saying that we can be liberty surest guardian around the world and at home. And at times, I really believe we meant it. We meant it. What happened? And, and when we think about this 2020 field, is anybody giving us hope for a new resurgent vision of American democracy? That's probably the most important issue or question, Peniel. And I think you used the right word, uh, vision. Uh, you study the Bible, and so you probably a half dozen times a day uh, recite this phrase, without vision, the people perish. And you mentioned some phrases, some visions from the past, uh, the New Deal, the Great Society, uh, putting a man on the moon. Those were great ideas. And a lot of those ideas, a lot of those ideas originated with political leaders. But a lot of those ideas also came out of the academy. There were serious thought leaders who, who we remember. We, I, when I was growing up, I knew who some of the college presidents were. I knew who the president of Texas Southern University was. I knew who the president of Harvard University was I knew that these were places that generated ideas and these were real leaders, not just in a narrow academy, but they were thought leaders in the community and in the world. Part of the blame, I think, for our lack of vision lies in the tendency of many academics to run in ever-narrowing concentric circles, uh, testing and retesting and retesting ideas. Those are the keys to success, unfortunately, uh, in the academy today. Historians such as yourself may be fortunate to be able to break out of that. But if you're in political science or if you're in, in, in economics, you're running in ever-narrowing concentric circles. It is very difficult to develop a real, clear, broad vision of where we ought to be going. So part of the blame, I think, lies with the way universities operate today. So we're just talking to ourselves at times in silos instead of talking to a larger public. We're just we're just talking to ourselves. The the LBJ school is is an exception because we believe that part of our job is to engage the larger public. Absolutely. But if you're in an academic department, you don't get credit for that. You get credit for writing journals and articles mm -hmm. uh, uh, articles and journals that very few people uh, ever read. Absolutely, uh, that's a problem with uh, today's uh, uh, today's academy. But there's another 
thing going on in the real world, and it began in the 1960s with immigration reform. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with a big change in the complexion of this country. We used to think of this country as existing pretty much in black and white, a huge white majority, uh, a small, uh, oppressed black minority that was uh, trying to, to secure a foothold in this society. And finally, as a result of the leadership of, of people like King and Lyndon Johnson and huge numbers of other people, Fannie Lou Hamer and the like, we began making progress. But we also passed an Immigration Reform Act, mm -hmm. which over a period of generations has helped to change this nation's complexion from black and white to color. Mm -hmm. Now, many of us think that's a good thing. Yes. But if you grew up if you're a young, if you are a, a middle class white person who grew up thinking that this was a white person's country, yes, and that white folks would always be in the majority, mm -hmm. if you thought that way, well, you might say, "Oh, okay, these these black folks they only represent a small percentage of the country. Maybe it's okay to let them vote because what harm can they do?" But if you are confronting the possibility yeah. of a much more diverse society, that's the kind of thing that makes you anxious mm -hmm. and sometimes angry. And while many of us were just elated at President Obama's election, mm -hmm. for a whole bunch of folks, that election was like a bucket of cold water yes. right in the face. It called their attention to the fact that, uh, you know, this ain't your daddy's country anymore. anymore. Yes. And it, I want to I close by asking about the, the 2020 Democratic primary uh, contestants. Some of these folks you know um, mm -hmm. and have met. Um, what do you think? I mean, does anybody have a vision? And I and when I say vision, I mean really a vision that's not based on ideology, a, a vision that is very practical, um, but that is very forward-looking, um, um, that gets us out of this morass and builds a new consensus so that democracy can work, small-d democracy can work. If they haven't, we haven't heard it. Uh, and that's uh, the sad thing. Uh, Joe Biden, whom I like a lot, mm -hmm. uh, is running on, I'm Joe Biden, you know me, and you know that I'm a friend of Barack Obama's. Bernie Sanders is pretty much uh, a one-trick pony. Uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, is extraordinarily smart, but she has a manner a kind of hectoring manner that's likely to turn people off. Uh, I, frankly, uh, have a great deal of affection for uh, Julian Castro, mm -hmm. who dropped out earlier, but I hope will resurface uh, on the right ticket as perhaps a vice presidential candidate. I like uh, uh, Kamala Harris, mm -hmm. uh, who didn't quite uh, catch on. And 
Cory Booker, who I think came closest to articulating not so much a vision, but a kind of soul. Yes. Yeah. And 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 attitude. Mm-hmm. Uh he was a kind of happy warrior. <laughs> uh, he conveyed this this sense of something that we we I think all could be could feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. But I have not seen that that great vision that you're talking about. Not yet. All right, we're gonna we're gonna end our conversation there with this idea that we haven't seen the 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 vision. But are we are we are we hopeful that 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 vision can come into being? We are very hopeful and and in fairness. I know we've been watching this, it seems like forever, mm-hmm. but we're just entering the primary season. And my guess is that some place between the Iowa caucuses, as we go through, uh, South Carolina, and when we get to Super Tuesday, mm-hmm. several of the candidates will have found their voice. We're ending on an optimistic note that the Democratic primary presidential contenders will find that voice and that vision to really um, provide leadership at a time um, in the country that I actually have never experienced before. This, there's a kind of vertigo to being an American right now where the usual norms, the kind of um, flawed consensus, uh, however imperfect, but was a consensus about what democracy, citizenship, morality, uh, political ethics and personal ethics meant have really been turned upside down in the context of the current presidential administration and the way in which that's reverberated domestically and globally around the world. And so we had this great conversation with Dr. Ed Dorn um, about uh, race, uh, international affairs, uh, the Russia-Trump connection, um, and which way forward in 2020. Um, Ed, thank you for being a guest. Peniel, thank you. Ed Dorn teaches defense policy and courses about the relationship between race and immigration policy at the LBJ School of Public Affairs, where he is the former dean from 1997 to 2005. He's got decades of policy experience uh, at the domestic and international level, and he is the chairman of the board of the Kettering Foundation and serves on the boards of the Institute for Defense Analysis and Seton Family Hospitals, and also participates in the annual uh, Dartmouth conferences, uh, an ongoing series of of very important meetings between prominent citizens of the United States and Russia. Thanks for listening to this episode, and you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.